So uh, why on earth uh, would we put evangelism in a sermon series entitled Spiritual Disciplines? Right? It, why, why put evangelism there? Uh, why would we call evangelism a spiritual discipline or even, as some call spiritual disciplines, a means of grace? Is it some way of earning God's favor and gaining salvation? We, we answer no. Um, but there is a, there's a good analogy that's given by a guy named David Mathis. He wrote a book called Habits of Grace. It's on spiritual disciplines. And he gives an analogy using Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man. Right? We know the song. Um, and he, he's quick to point out, this isn't the main point of the Zacchaeus story or the text, but it serves as a good analogy for understanding spiritual disciplines um, as a means of grace. So kind of the first thing that he points out is important. Spiritual disciplines are not primarily avenues of expression, but rather times of being acted upon in which God is the primary actor. So worship, singing, praying, reading the word, hearing a sermon, sitting under the word of God, uh, doing the Lord's Supper, evangelizing, discipling, all the different fasting. All these things are not merely us expressing ourselves to God, but rather they're avenues in which God primarily expresses himself to us. He's the primary mover and actor in the spiritual disciplines, though we also have a role to play. But in the Zacchaeus story, here's the analogy. Uh, He compares spiritual disciplines like a road that you know Jesus often travels. So in the Zacchaeus story, he knows Jesus is coming in on this road and he's excited about it. He wants to he just wants to catch a glimpse of him. He's excited. It's kind of like, you know, there's a celebrity coming or a really good teacher coming. He wants to catch a glimpse of it. He gets there. There's crowds all around the road. He got there a little late and he's a wee little man. So he finds a tree, right? And he climbs up so that he might get his best glimpse possible of Jesus that he can possibly get as Jesus is walking on the road. Uh, David Mathis uh, compares this to spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are what the Bible teaches that these are the roads in which God often travels, in which Jesus often reveals himself the most through the reading of scripture, prayer, the things that we've been talking about. And so for us to, to do the spiritual disciplines, we're essentially taking ourselves to the road in hopes that Jesus, as he's passing by, we get a good glimpse of who he is. And, you know, Zacchaeus did one more, right? He climbed the tree so that he could get the best possible glimpse. Now, he can't control whether or not Jesus is going to approach him and speak to him and speak words of life into him. But he can't control the posture in which he is set up to see the best glimpse of Christ he can possibly get. And then in this, the story of Zacchaeus, right? Of course, Jesus approaches the tree, says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to eat with you today. And then we know later on, salvation itself came to the house of Zacchaeus. And so the spiritual disciplines are that. They are the roads in which God often travels. It's not a way of controlling grace, but rather it's a way of positioning yourself to catch the best glimpse of God's glory in the face of Jesus. Um, so that, that's, so why, are we, um, why are we calling evangelism a spiritual discipline? That's what we're going to focus on today in John chapter 4 primarily. It's not all about evangelism. So we're going to see some other things uh, on discipleship and how we interact with people along the way. Uh, but we're going to primarily look at six characteristics of evangelism given to us uh, by John, um, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Namely from uh, his witness of what Jesus did. Right, the conversations that he was able to witness. Um, we're going to be focusing on evangelism as a church pretty heavily this spring leading up to to Easter. 
Uh, so before we kind of dive into our text, I want to just uh, talk about the vision of Remedy Church that I believe that God really has for every church. Uh, the idea of creating a culture of evangelism. Uh, Mark Dever says it this way in his book uh, entitled The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. He says, I also pray that you come to evangelize more. You will help your church... In- You will help your church to develop a culture of evangelism. What do I mean by a culture of evangelism? I mean an expectation that Christians will share the gospel with others, talk about doing that, pray about it, and regularly plan and work together to help each other evangelize. We want evangelism to be normal in our own lives and in our churches. End quote. And so... Um, that's kind of like the, the vision we're casting, right? We want to create and enhance a culture of evangelism here at Remedy Church. But I also, before we kind of dive in and look at what that looks like from the, the scriptures, I want to I caution us. Because when you throw out ideals, it's really easy to like look at people through the lens of ideal or yourself, right? Oh, if I would have just done this, I would have done it better. Or, oh, you know what? That person's slacking. They, they only show up to church like once every five months. Ideally, they should be here every single second, both services and afterwards. Um, you know, sometimes we let the ideals destroy our actual love for the people that are in front of us. And we have to be careful not to do that. So I just want to give kind of two words from 1 Corinthians uh, 12. Uh, as we're looking around at a culture of evangelism, we're not called to fester on what we lack We're called to be thankful for what God has given so that he might give even more. Um, And so 1 Corinthians 12, it says this, uh, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. Or sorry, if the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. A little bit later in 1 Corinthians 12. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And so I want to emphasize to you here at Remedy, if you're here at Remedy, there's two truths from God's word that apply to you. First, you belong to the body, even if you don't feel like it, right? Don't say to someone they don't belong. That's what the word of God just said. Don't say to the foot, you don't belong because you do. And then the second truth is um, that the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. If you're here at Remedy Church, you are needed. You are necessary. God has a plan for the gifts and the experiences and the things that you've gone through in your life to use it to shape and mold and fashion us to be more like Christ and to grow up in the head that is Jesus. And this is not, this is not me a backhanded way of saying, uh, don't leave the church or uh, be super loyal, you know, put the brand of remedy on your chest and take it everywhere. It's just me trying to emphasize what God's word says about being part of a local body. Right? That you're, you belong and you're necessary. Now, I'm saying that because if we want a culture of evangelism, we have to have a foundation of love for the body. We can't, we can't go to a culture of evangelism without the foundation of the love of the body. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way. When we love our ideal of the community more than the community, we destroy the latter and fail at the former. When we love our ideals of what we ought to be more than we love what we actually are, we will actually find ourselves destroying those in front of us and failing at what we're actually striving to accomplish. And so how does that um, apply to evangelism? Martin Lloyd-Jones, old preacher, uh, he's dead now, so he's a dead old guy, Um, my dog, right? Uh, He's called the doctor. 
And because he was an actual doctor, he converted to Christ and then he became a pastor. He wrote it this way. Evangelism is preeminently dependent upon the quality of Christian life, which is known and enjoyed in the church. And so if we want to create a culture of evangelism, we have to first have a quality of Christian life as the body of Christ, as the family of Christ, loving one another before we can possibly uh, evangelize the lost effectively. And so let's look at these six um, characteristics of evangelism. Our first one is going to come from John chapter 3, verse 36, very last verse in John uh, 3. The first uh, characteristic is this, to have eternal life or to have the wrath of God is the choice behind every choice and the stakes behind our discipline of evangelizing the lost. So eternal life or the wrath of God is the choice behind every choice and the stakes behind our discipline of evangelizing the lost. Uh, three, chapter, uh, 3, verse 36 says it this way, Whoever believes in the Son, Jesus, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There are no verses or chapter numbers in the original manuscripts of the Bible. These are added later on for organizational purposes so that when you're saying, hey, I saw this in John, you can tell someone like it's page whatever on chapter 3, verse 32. And so it's important whenever you're reading a passage from the Bible that you look right before it or right after it to see kind of what comes before it because it's, it's possible that when we said this is the end of chapter 3 and this is the beginning of chapter 4, actually the end of chapter 3 is going into chapter 4. It's part of it. Um, that's, that's what we find here. So let me give a, a quick overview of what came before. In John 3, Jesus just had a conversation, a gospel conversation with Nicodemus, a male Jewish leader. Pretty much the exact opposite of the Samaritan woman. Like when you compare and contrast Nicodemus and his social status versus the Samaritan woman. Uh, opposites in many ways. He had this conversation with Nicodemus about being born again. Uh, we also then find one of the most evangelistic passages in all the Bible in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Um, and then a little bit later, we see that the, the pressure of John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus' ministry being in the same place, uh, the Pharisees are taking note and they're starting to put a little bit of pressure on them. And this kind of leads to the reason for why Jesus decides it's best to go to Galilee and leave John um, in Judea. And uh, John's famous statement, I must decrease as Jesus increases, happens there. And then you get verse 36, which is the very last verse, where it kind of summarizes it. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains. It's important to understand that this verse comes between two conversations. A conversation with Nicodemus, where Jesus is evangelizing. He's preaching to him. He's telling him, you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. And then now a conversation that he's about to have with the Samaritan woman where he offers the well of living water to her. Eternal life again is offered to her. And this verse comes in between. This verse, in fact, comes right before we get to the Samaritan woman. And so John literally wants us, as we're reading through the story of the the Samaritan woman, to have this verse on our minds. And so when we're thinking about the woman at the well and the Samaritans at the city, in the city, this should be fresh on our minds. When Jesus is literally approaching the woman at the well, he's approaching someone that the verse right before it says, the wrath of God remains on this person. When the Samaritans are coming from the city to inquire about Jesus, they're coming as people in which the wrath of God remains. And so the stakes are high 
in evangelism. And this is straight out of the Bible. I don't want us to, um, the, it's kind of a cliche, right? It's kind of become this idea, this religious jargon, like hell and heaven needs to motivate us to go out and do evangelism. The reason it's become cliche is because it's straight out of God's word that we ought to have on our minds that we as ambassadors of Christ, we are offering to people the well of living water, Jesus himself, eternal life itself. And if they don't believe in Jesus, the wrath of God remains. C.K. Barrett um, points out here that the wrath of God, the phrase wrath of God, only appears in John in one place, and it's here. And in the Greek, it's literally the wrath of God. It's positioned right between uh, two instances of Jesus evangelizing those who do not know him and do not believe him. Uh, The other thing from this verse, uh, and this is just kind of a side note, um, notice it says, believe in Jesus' eternal life, disobey Jesus, wrath of God remains. So it's not believe and unbelief, it's believe and disobey. Uh, John, the entire gospel, uh, really answers the question, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? That's, that's the answer. That's the whole book. The word faith, belief, it comes up over a hundred times in the gospel of John because John is careful to point out dead belief or belief that doesn't lead to life. And he's careful to point out what true belief looks like and the different things that characterize it. And here he's doing just that. True belief leads us into obedience to Jesus Christ. So true faith in Christ will lead us to obey Jesus' commands. Not perfectly, right? But it does lead to obedience. And so disobedience, direct disobedience, open disobedience, complete disobedience is a mark that someone has not uh, believed in Jesus. And so John's contrasting that for us here. And so our first characteristic, again, is that eternal life and the wrath of God, it should be in our minds as we're rubbing shoulders with people throughout our day because it's real, right? Uh, When Jesus approaches the well, it's not just merely, I'm thirsty, give me a drink of water. This is a human being who has a soul and has a relationship or a lack thereof with God. Uh, Our second characteristic is going to come from chapter 4, 1 through 5. And um, I wrote, do not miss the opportunities for evangelism found in between our plans. Do not miss the opportunities for evangelism found in between our plans. Uh, Verse 1 through 5 gives us the context for how Jesus is going to end up in Samaria. Um, The Pharisees, again, they saw Jesus' ministry is becoming more popular. And Jesus determines that it's better to go to Galilee. Uh, In between Galilee and Judea is Samaria. And so geographically speaking, the fastest route to get to where he wants to go is through Samaria. And so verse four is kind of actually charged with double meaning. Verse four says this, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, geographically speaking, that's true. I mean, he could have technically took the long way around, right? He could have. There actually were uh, instances in which uh, the group of the Pharisees would take the long way around because they didn't want to be associated with the Samaritans. Um, So he had to pass if he wanted to go the fast route. But John is also here essentially winking at us, the audience of his book. And he's saying, yeah, he had to pass. Why did he have to pass? Because he had to have a conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well. And then he then had to have conversations with his disciples and teach them what it means to disciple and evangelize. And then he then had to have a conversation with the Samaritans who she's going to bring to Jesus That's why he had to pass through Samaria. In the Greek, it brings our attention to the word through because the preposition through the word, it appears in the Greek as through and then it is also attached to the verb pass. And so through literally appears twice in that one verse and it reads something like this. He had to pass through Samaria. 
Because he's wanting his readers to just draw in. What's going to happen in Samaria? Why, why does he have to pass? Why is John bringing our emphasis here uh, to Samaria? And we know why. And so here's kind of the point for us here, the application. Uh, Jesus' goal was Galilee, but he didn't miss Samaria. His goal was Galilee. He didn't miss Samaria. You know, we, we're filled with goals and purposes and different things um, that we have on our hearts. Like, you know, when we're hungry, uh, maybe it's a, it's a good night to go out to eat. And so we go out to eat. eat. Our goal is, you know, food in our bellies because we're hungry. We're going to our best restaurant. That's our goal. But don't miss what's in between that goal. Who are you rubbing shoulders with as you're going to the restaurant? Who have you considered to invite with you to eat at the restaurant? Uh, what, a, what, what, you know, what kind of conversations are we having with our waiters or our waitresses um, who come to us? Uh, you know, things like that. Uh, when we think about like where we want to live, right? We want shelter for ourselves. So maybe it's shelter for our families or we're just looking for a place to stay or we're looking for a roommate in an apartment complex. Um, we're looking primarily for shelter, but don't miss the in-between. God has orchestrated who you're living with. God has orchestrated who you're living next to. God has orchestrated all these people that you're rubbing shoulders with. Um, the Lake Wiley branch of the Palmetto Crisis Pregnancy Center, it's now called the Palmetto Women's Center, and the Lake Wiley branch is actually a mobile trailer unit. Um, but I used to do a few uh, things through my school uh, with them. And the staff there, they would always say, every appointment is a divine appointment. Right. Every appointment is a divine appointment. And I tell you, we would benefit so greatly if we could just live that out. Right. And I'm I'm not saying that I live that out perfectly at all. But if we could just live out like when some guy's asking me for directions in the parking lot of a basketball game that I'm trying to go home. Right. I'm walking out of the basketball. He's asking me for directions. God has orchestrated that moment for me to have a conversation with him and to care for him and to communicate the well of living water with him in whatever way I can. Um, and so being able to see that in our goals, there are things that God's orchestrated being able to say, yeah, I had to go to, you know, I was going to the restaurant. I had to go to the restaurant, but through going to the restaurant, I met this person or I invited this person from work or whatever it is. Um, every appointment is a divine appointment. So our third characteristic Um, and I kind of tricked you. I was like, this is only a six point sermon, but there's like five points under point three. So it's like an 11 point sermon. Sorry. Um, so the third point is this, we must use our conversation as a means of sharing Christ with people. Use our conversations as a means of sharing Christ with people. And this is coming from verses six through 26. And our first kind of sub point of this is a, uh, God uses our needs and our weaknesses as a platform to start conversations with people about Jesus. He uses our needs and our weaknesses as a platform to start conversations uh, about Jesus with people. Uh, So in verses six through eight, we really don't have any record in the old Testament of a well uh, that Jacob establishes in Samaria, uh, especially of a land plot that he gave to Joseph. But in Genesis 48, 22, it tells us of a time in which Jacob gave a plot of land, which is actually near Sakar, uh, to his son, Joseph. And to this day, there still is a well there that everyone uh, agrees is the well of Jacob. Uh, D.A. Carson on this well says this, it was dug out 
but it was fed by an underground spring that is remarkably reliable to this day. And so it actually is a well and a cistern simultaneously. It was dug out as a cistern, but it also has this underground spring that feeds up into it as well. And so, um, which is interesting because John, in chapter 4, he uses the word for well and cistern interchangeably throughout the text. And it's actually true of this well. It's both a cistern and a well. Um, So in verse 6, it opens up with Jesus' excuse for being at the well in the first place. He's tired from a journey. He's thirsty. He's also likely hungry because it says that he sent his disciples to go get food from the the villages around. And um, so there's this conversation that's going to take place between verse 6 and 26. And at the start of it, it's the humanity of Jesus that's on display. He's tired. He's hungry. He's thirsty. And at the end of it, it's the divinity of Jesus that's on display. He says to her when she talks about the Messiah, he says, I am the one who is speaking to you. And in the Greek, it's ego eme. And it, it, John uses this as a theme throughout his book. I'll cover this a little bit later. But it comes back from Exodus when Moses goes to the burning bush and God tells him his covenantal name and he says, I am that I am. It's literally referring to that word. So Jesus starts in his humanity, right? He's thirsty, he's tired, he's hungry. But by the end of the conversation, she progresses in her understanding of who Christ is. And by the end of it, he's the Messiah and he's divine. He's God. And so all throughout that is just a conversation. Um, So uh, he uses our needs and weaknesses. So Jesus, uh, his fatigue and his thirst is used for God's glory here. The woman comes to draw water around noon. This is an odd time to draw water. Uh, Normally people would go in the morning or they would go in the evening when the sun's less out because it's cooler. And she's alone, which indicates that she's going at an odd hour. And it's also kind of hinting at that she's got some kind of shameful, ostracized thing going on where the village is not hanging out with her and they've kind of excluded her. And so, you know, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, But this is, she comes at noon. And so even though uh, later on, right, we'll learn more, a little bit more about why maybe the village has ostracized her. She's coming at noon and Jesus just happens to be at the well at the same exact time. Why? He had to go through Samaria. I mean, every appointment is a divine appointment. And here he's going to initiate the conversation simply by giving this Samaritan woman an opportunity to help him. He says, give me a drink, right? He's thirsty. He asks her to give him a drink. And then the text tells us that the disciples were off uh, getting food. All right. Our second sub point here comes from verse nine. And this is sub point B. Social, ethnic, cultural, Age, gender stigmas are not to drive our evangelism. The gospel is meant to be shared with all people, regardless of background. Now, what I did not say here is that social, ethnic, cultural, age, gender stigmas don't guide how we relate to one another or are not important at all. That's not what I said at all. What I said is when answering the question, should I evangelize this person? Should I share the gospel with this person? Social, ethnic, cultural, age, gender stigmas do not matter and should not matter. The answer is always yes. Now, let's delve into where we get that from this text. So in this, uh, in this time when he meets with this woman at the well, there's many reasons for why he should not talk to her. There's many reasons. 
why he should not talk for one reason. Uh, there's a history between the Jews and the Samaritans. And there's, there's political here. There's cultural here. There's just bad blood. There were wars between them. There's all kinds of things. But we're going through it in 1 Kings and 2 Kings currently, right? Uh, Israel is split into two kingdoms. The Samaritans are the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. And there's, there's all kinds of wars going on. And eventually, uh, Samaritans, the northern kingdom, is going to be taken into captivity to Assyria. And they're going to be interspersed throughout the Assyrian kingdom. And they're going to intermarry with all the different um, uh, nations that are within Assyria. And the Jews kind of look at them and they, they see them not as Jews anymore. You know, half-bloods, whatever you want to call, right? And so there's this ethnic slash social slash political thing going on for why Jesus shouldn't talk to this uh, Samaritan woman. But there's also the fact that she was a male and she was a female. Within a generation of Jesus's time, uh, Jewish leaders wrote in the traditions called the Mishnah, um, the daughters of Samaritans were perpetually in a state of ceremonial uncleanness. That's the PG-13 version. And what they mean by that is if you're a Jew and you see a Samaritan woman, you need to stay clear side on the other road from her because she will make you unclean. That was the view within a generation of Jesus's day, Right. And so there's all these social stigmas and cultural taboos going on in this text. And yet Jesus engages her in a conversation nonetheless. Carson says it this way in comparing uh, Jesus's uh, conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus's later conversation with the Samaritan woman. He says this, uh, a religious male Jewish aristocrat like Nicodemus or an untrained female Samaritan peasant who had made a mess of her life. Jesus converses frankly with both and happily breaks social and religious taboos to do so. And it's not, it's not, it's not by chance that John put Nicodemus, the conversation with Nicodemus right before the Samaritan woman. He wants you to see that Jesus is reaching out to every single person, regardless of their social, ethnic, cultural, age, gender. Um, it doesn't matter. Um, so, Our next thing comes from verses 10 through 15. And this is letter C. We should use that which is around us as a bridge to talk about the gospel with people. Um, Verse 10 shows us that Jesus starts off, frankly, by sharing who he is. He's the one who can give living water to people. Um, He tells her, right, uh, give me, you know, give me a drink. And then she's saying, you know, how are you, a Jew, talking to me, a Samaritan, right? Um, And then he goes on to say, if, you know, if you knew the gift of God you would know who it is that's talking to you and you would ask for me and I would give you living water. Now the phrase gift of God kind of has a double meaning here in the text. First, it's meaning like if you knew about eternal life that Jesus offers, you would ask him for it. Uh, But the second thing is, is actually the Samaritans, culturally speaking, used the phrase gift of God to refer to their scriptures. So the Samaritans believed that the first five books of the Bible were the only books of the Bible. So the Jews, it was the 39 books that we have in the Old Testament. The Samaritans, it was Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books. And they would call it the gift of God. And so Jesus is actually starting where she's at, right? And he's saying, if you knew the Torah, right, your Bible, you would know that it speaks about me and you would recognize me. And then you would ask for me for living water, right? And so that's where he kind of starts, very frankly, and up 
upfront with her about who he is. And there's kind of a rebuke here, right? He does this with uh, Nicodemus. He's like, do you, you call yourself the teacher of Israel and you don't understand the things that I'm telling to you because he was doing all these references from the Old Testament, particularly Ezekiel 36. And now he's doing it with a Samaritan woman. If you just merely read the scriptures, you would see that it's they that talk about me and I have life for you. Um, and so that's where he starts. Verse 11 through 12 shows us that like Nicodemus before her, she kind of misses the point and she sticks to the physical, right? He's talking about water. There's a well right here. So he, he must mean literal water uh, that literally takes away my thirst. He continues to press on his analogy by contrasting the water that he offers with the well. And then also he's implicitly contrasting himself with um, Jacob, because it's Jacob's well, and it's his li- it's his livestock, it's his sons that drank from this well. Another interesting thing for the Samaritans um, in the Day of Atonement. So this is Leviticus 16. Every year, the great high priest um, he would sacrifice uh, on behalf of the whole nation. Uh, these you know these two things like one goat would be killed. And the sins would be confessed over it. And another goat, sins would be confessed over it and it would be sent out in the wilderness. It's where we get our phrase scapegoat from. Um, Leviticus 16, one of their liturgies, one of the things that they would recite during uh, the Day of Atonement in Samaria was Numbers 24-7. And they would apply it to the Tahib or the Messiah, the Christ. They called him the Tahib, the Revealer. Uh, Numbers 24-7 says this, Water shall flow from his buckets. And so even in, you know, the liturgy of the Day of Atonement, it's, it's got this theme of water. And this rich theme of water is all throughout the Old Testament. So Isaiah 12, 3, draw out from the well of salvation with joy. Uh, Isaiah 44, 3, Isaiah 49, 10, uh, Ezekiel 36, Zechariah 14, Jeremiah 2, 13 is my favorite. I'm going to actually quote it. Jeremiah 2, 13 says this, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He's literally having a conversation in front of a cistern about living water. And the choice is hers, right? Continue drinking from this well and you'll always be thirsty. Or you can drink from my well and have living water and have it to the fullest. In verse 15, we see again that the woman is still, she's stuck on the, the water. Is she talking literally or spiritually? What's going on here? And so she's not applying it to her spiritual life. So she's excited about this. You mean I won't be thirsty again and I won't have to come back to this well. Now there's two reasons to be excited about not having to come back to the well. It's work. But the other reason is, I mean, she's alone. There's no one around her. There's, the village is not with her. And so it's, it's just a, it's a constant reminder of whatever's going on in her life right before. And so she's excited about not having to have to come back to this well. And so she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so this comes to our next uh, sub point D recognition of sin is necessary for recognition of the great hope and promise held out to us in the gospel. Recognition of sin is necessary for the recognition of the great hope and promise held out to us in the gospel. And this is the very next two, three verses, 16 through 18. Uh, Jesus changes the subject, all right? She understands his analogy, but it's still being applied to the physical. And so he, he just, he randomly says, go call your husband. Now here what's going on is God has given him supernatural knowledge about this woman and her background. So he knows what he's doing. He's, he's 
Go call your husband. And she answers, it's kind of a, it's, a, it's true, but it's, a, it's kind of a half truth. It's kind of an avoiding truth, right? I have no husband. And Jesus responds to her, yeah, you're, you're, you're right in saying that you have no husband because you've had five husbands and now the one that you're with is not your husband, right? And so I just want to make two quick points from this. First point is in order to, for people to receive Jesus, they have to see their need for him. Uh, her need is, is clear. So I'll give the best case scenario. Best case scenario is she's had five legal husbands. They've all divorced her and then she's been remarried, but currently is living in sin with a man in which she's not married to, right? That's the best case. The worst case scenario is there's, there's divorce and adultery and all other kinds of things. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Right. But we do know that currently she's living with someone in which is not currently her husband. And so she's living in sin. But I also want to be quick to point out here. Jesus, he's not trying to get her to think about emope or dwell upon or feel ashamed of her sin. He's actually saying this to her. Maybe that she'll see her spiritual need. But more importantly, she'll see something more about Jesus. Right now, Jesus, he's just this random probably weird Jewish guy because he's talking to me in the first place. That's all she, that's all Jesus is to her. And after this, she proclaims of Jesus, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet because why he knows things about her life that he can't possibly know unless God revealed it to him. And so he's not putting her sin in front of her to make her feel bad, but rather he's putting her sin in front of her that she might recognize more of who he is and that she might keep going closer and closer to the truth of who Jesus is. Uh, the second kind of quick point uh, that I want to make is more for us in application. Uh, Jesus was fully man, and God gave him supernatural knowledge of this woman, and he can still do that today. And so the point for us from this text that I think is, is when we're going out in places in which we know we're going to rub shoulders with people, we need to be in prayer with God the Father, asking Him to give us insights, even supernatural insights into people's lives. But even if it's not insights, Lord, just just let me say the right thing that'll open up a conversation in which I can then share Jesus with. We need to be praying and be dependent upon God the Father. And later on, you'll see that it's actually His will, right? It's uh, Our food is to do His will, and we'll see that later on. And so that's kind of our second uh, thing from this. So God does provide naturally and supernaturally to his people when they're seeking to share the gospel with those who are in need. Our last uh, sub point is E. The aim of evangelism is to get people to increase in their recognition of who Jesus truly claims to be. The, go- the goal, the end game of evangelism is that people would come to a greater knowledge of who Jesus truly is than they had before and that they would believe that. Right. And we see that in this conversation. Verse 19, uh, the, the Samaritan woman, she's now upgraded her view of Jesus from some random weird Jewish guy who's breaking cultural taboos to, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, this is interesting because the Samaritans, there's only two prophets for the Samaritans. The Samaritans, it's Moses who wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy, and it's the Deuteronomy 18, the prophet in which Moses says will come after him and will be greater, the Messiah himself. And so for her to even start using prophet language, it's, that's a strong statement for her. She just went from like random guy to like, you're hearing from God and you potentially might even be hinting at you might be the Messiah. So she, she's had a strong change of mind because of Jesus's conversation with her 
so far. And so whatever she meant, whether it was just like, oh, God must have given that to you. So you're a prophet or you're the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. Um, they only believe uh, whatever she meant. Uh, she uh, she avoids kind of the subject of her sin. And she tra- changes the tune toward what is worship. So now there's two. I said that wrong. There's two really interpretations of this. She could be avoiding her sin and trying to change it to worship. Or she could be like, because you were a prophet, you have good things to say about how to worship God. Teach me how to worship. I actually believe it's the latter. And so she changes to, uh, you know, the Samaritans, right? They worship on this mountain. And the Jews claim that Jerusalem is the place in which uh, we worship. Uh, The mountain that they worship on is Gerizim. It's one of the first places that Abraham built an altar Um, it's also the mountain in which they would call out the blessings and the curses of the old covenant in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Um, and so this mountain actually, it's, it's a pretty important mountain, even in Jewish uh, history. And the Samaritans took that to mean that's where you worship God. Well, that's because they stop at Deuteronomy. If you keep going on through the rest of the old Testament, right? We get the, the temple of God, the tabernacles built, the temple of God is built in Jerusalem and God commands that he's worshiped there. And so she brings this up and is like, all right, you're a prophet. Solve this for me. Are the Jews right or are the Samaritans right? And Jesus actually says, well, he doesn't shy away from saying the Jews are right. But then he also says, but there's an hour that's coming and now is in which neither this mountain nor the temple of God will people worship, but instead they'll worship the father in spirit and truth, meaning his people will be filled with the Holy spirit and they will properly come to the true temple of God, Jesus himself. And that is how we will worship God. And so he, he says the hour is coming and now is it's fulfilled because I am here, um, where you will do neither or, but he doesn't shy away from correcting her view of scripture and worship. Uh, he says it this way. Um, He says that the Samaritans worship what they do not know and the Jews worship what they do know. Uh, D.A. Carson uh, summarizes that like this. Jesus argues that the Jews are in the stream of God's revelation. Therefore, they worship what they do know. They've accepted the entire Old Testament. The Samaritans do not receive the prophets or the writings and therefore are characterized by worship what they do not know. So he corrects her view of scriptures, but then he goes one further and corrects Overall, not only the Samaritan understanding of worship, but the Jewish understanding that Jesus, once the Messiah comes, all followers of God will worship God in spirit and in truth. And in them, there will be a well of living water that springs up unto eternal life. Again, hinting at the gift of the Holy Spirit that's given to all who believe in Jesus. So after talking about spiritual worship with her, the woman's ready to move on to the sub from prophet to Messiah. Uh, She says in verse 25, you know, we know that when the Messiah comes, the one who's called the Christ, he will tell us all things. Again, they called the uh, Messiah the Tahib. It means revealer because he'll tell us all things. So that's what she's hinting at here. And Jesus in verse 26, this is the climax and the end of the conversation. The last, the final words. He says, I who speak to you am he. But in the literal Greek, he says, I am the one speaking to you. And uh, John uses this I am statement throughout his gospel to hint at that the Messiah is not just merely the person who saves us, but the Messiah is actually God himself, Yahweh, uh, the I am that I am. So throughout, scattered throughout the gospel of John, there are seven I am statements that Jesus makes that uh, enhance our view of who he is as Messiah, but also as God. I am, you know, the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection life. 
I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, there's others probably. Um, and then also scattered throughout John, there's other I am statements where he's not actually enhancing necessarily uh, the view of what it means to be the Messiah, but he is making the claim in front of people that he's God. So for instance, uh, the Pharisees are arguing with him about being greater than Abraham. And he's saying like, are you greater than Abraham? And Jesus says the statement before Abraham was, I am. And kind of the reaction to that is pick up stones, potentially kill Jesus. Why? He made himself equal to God. They understood the, the nuance clearly a little bit later. Um, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, uh, they ask him, are you Jesus? Right. And he says, I am. And they all fall down. Like, we don't know why. Right. But again, John is hinting at because he's God. He is Yahweh. That is Yahweh you're arresting. That is the God of the Bible that you're arresting. And then here, the Samaritan woman, I am the one who's speaking to you. I am God, the one who is speaking uh, to you. And so this is the climax of the divine speech. And so as we're looking at evangelism, the purpose of our conversations is that they go from, you're weird, why are you talking to me? I'm a stranger, we're strangers, to, oh, Jesus, okay, well, he's a good teacher. Uh, to, oh, uh, he seems to know a lot about my life and how I feel. Maybe he's a prophet of some kind, God's with him. To, he's the savior of the world. He's God, Right? That's the goal of evangelism, and that's what true faith eventually leads to, um, believing that Jesus is those things. So our fourth thing is we're going to switch from evangelism, and we're going to go more into discipleship broadly. Um, And this is, uh, number four, I wrote, tasting Christ, the living water yourself, leads to sharing Christ, the living water with others. Tasting Christ, the living water yourself, leads to sharing Christ, the living water with others. With others, And this comes from verses 27 through 30 and also verse 39. So the disciples come back and they're, they're, they're very um, estranged. They feel very strange when they're looking at Jesus having a conversation with this Samaritan woman. And um, no one dared talk to him or her about it. They, they had questions, but they kept them to themselves. So you can kind of just imagine they're feeling really awkward about the situation. They're not bold enough to like say that they're feeling awkward about the situation. So they're just kind of sitting there like, you know, awkward turtle or whatever you do. Right. And they're sitting there and I want, this is a side note, but it's important for us. They are struggling with ethnic prejudice in this passage. They are. They're like, why are you talking to a Samaritan? Why are you talking to a woman? They're struggling with prejudices here. And note what Jesus does, right? He doesn't say, how dare these struggle with prejudices get away from me. But rather, he continues conversing with the Samaritans. She goes out and invites more Samaritans. And then he gives them a talk to develop their understanding of what it means to properly be a disciple. And then he invites them to participate in his work of discipleship, right? He models it and he invite, he fixes their view and he invites them to then participate in their view. Um, that's it. That's pretty important. I think to, uh, recognize. So here, uh, verse 28, the focus goes back again to the Samaritan woman. She leaves her water jug behind. And, um, there's really two reasons for this. Uh, the first reason I like is, well, Jesus asked for water. She filled it up and she left it behind so Jesus could have a drink. That's, that's possible one reason. I think this is another um, indication of John literally winking at his audience and saying, no, what's really happened is she's decided to leave behind the cistern and she is drink, 
drank, 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 uh, from the well of living water. And now that she's tasted and seen, she won't go back to the cistern. She's on her way to the city of Samaria to then proclaim this living water to them as well. And so John's saying, yeah, she left the water jar behind. Why? She didn't need it anymore. Um, spiritually speaking. Uh, so this woman goes to the city and she tells them, come see the man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And verse 30 confirms that her testimony piqued the interest of the villagers. So imagine this again. She's likely ostracized by this village. She tastes of Christ. And that doesn't matter anymore. Shame doesn't matter anymore. She goes immediately and she just starts anyone like, hey, come see this guy. I told. And what did he tell her about? Like he told her about her sin. And she's just like, yeah, come, come see what this guy. He told me about my sin. Could this be the Christ? Like, that's crazy to me, the transformation that you get to witness of this woman in just a few, you know, 26 verses, basically. So it piqued their entrance. It says the people went out of the city and they came to Jesus himself. Uh, Bruce Milne, commentator Bruce Milne, says it this way. There are no more attractive evangelists than those who have newly discovered Jesus. But I would qualify that by saying um, that doesn't mean new believers only. If you're an old believer, right, you've been in the faith for a while. He's not saying that you can't be an attractive evangelist. He's saying that you need to newly taste of Jesus. You need to have a drink of the living water every single day. You need to remind yourself of the value and the glory that you have discovered in Christ Jesus so that you can go out and be an effective evangelist like this woman. And so here's some questions I think... um, are helpful. I like to ask these questions myself when I, when I find a lack of desire to evangelize, or maybe I came back from a place and it just comes to me and I realize I had like 10 opportunities. Like people literally were like basically asking me to tell them the gospel, but I, I didn't because I missed it. It didn't even come to mind or whatever. And so these are questions that I like to ask myself um, because I think it's important. Um, have I tasted Christ recently? Like, Is my joy truly found in Christ today? If I find myself having no desire to evangelize, I always suspect that there's something wrong going on in my heart. And so I I bring my heart, I, I go to God and I say, Lord, point this out to me, cause me to repent, remind me again of Christ Jesus. Um, And I would submit that we should do those things when we find in ourselves a lack or a fear or whatever it is, right? Something that's overcoming um, our practice of a personal evangelism. Uh, Their concern was not for uh, the disciples when they come back. I find myself to be like them. When they came back, they were very awkward. But they also, their concern was not for this woman's joy in Christ. Their concern was not for the, the city that they literally left. I mean, don't miss that, right? They left the city that the Samaritan woman now is going to. <laughs> they were the disciples of Jesus. They likely didn't disciple anyone or evangelize anyone. And now the Samaritan woman is going back to the same city. So many times I find myself to be like the disciples, right? I didn't even think about it. I just went, I bought food, I came back, I failed, right? Um, come to Christ, he doesn't condemn you. Ask for forgiveness and ask for him to give you boldness and courage and to point out those opportunities to evangelize. All right, so our fifth um, of six uh, characteristic of evangelism is evangelism is food for our Christian walk and thus necessary for our growth in Christ. It's a food for our Christian walk and thus necessary for our growth 
in Christ. While the woman was off now evangelizing her own city, the disciples were busy now worrying about Jesus' appetite. So (laughs) the passage starts off with the woman, you know, Jesus using thirst. His thirst is how he's going to use to evangelize this woman. And now he's going to use his hunger to evangelize, not evangelize, but to disciple his disciples, to bring them into a fuller meaning of what it is uh, for discipleship. He then says to him, I have food. Um, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Like Nicodemus, they, and the Samaritan woman, they turn their attention to actual food and not the spiritual truth that he's trying to get at here. And so he then spells it out a little bit later. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Evangelism is food for our souls. It is part of the will of God for us as his people to go to the lost and to present Jesus to them. And so that is why we call it a spiritual discipline. Because when we find ourselves not evangelizing, we are missing out on one of the many avenues in which God oftentimes travels and reveals Christ through. And so not only is evangelism good for the person in whom the wrath of God might remain because they haven't believed in Jesus, it's also good for us. God uses it to nourish us and to grow us. And so when we don't evangelize, we actually cut ourselves off from some of the nourishment that God the Father longs to give to us. So Jesus now turns his attention, his attention and analogy to the idea of reaping and sowing. And uh, he said, I sent you to reap. Uh, this is verse 38. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. This is a great truth. All right. And uh, maybe some of you in here are like master evangelists or you, you do it. You have a, a weekly, daily practice where you feel pretty comfortable with evangelizing or maybe you don't feel comfortable, but you do it nonetheless. I found that it can be a temptation. Again, going back to that ideal versus the real people in front of you. I found that it can be a temptation that you start talking about your passion, right? Like I was you know, over here and this person we were evangelizing and, you know, the other Christian that you're talking to, they're like, uh, yeah, cool. Can we change the subject? Football? Anyone? <laughs> and like, and you can get disheartened, right? You can be like, I, I want to talk about the lost with you. I want to talk. I want you to help me to evangelize. And maybe they're too afraid to evangelize or, or maybe they've never done it before. They've never received training or they're just not interested because their, their heart in this particular season is hard toward it. And they need to repent and believe in Jesus. Notice how Jesus interacts with the disciples. They were in that place. They went to the city and didn't evangelize. They came back and they missed the point completely. And Jesus here invites them to join him in laboring, right? He invites them into the harvest for which they did not labor. And that's what I would, I would encourage you all to do. If you, are, uh, if you are practicing evangelism, invite people to go with you from Remedy Church so that they can be with you and they can kind of see how you do it. And they can, like the disciples, be equipped and changed and transformed and updated on how to be a proper uh, disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, I want to give two examples of this because this is real to me. Uh, This isn't just like, oh, the scripture says it. This is something that I've seen in my own life. Um, There's two people at this church, and there's been more, but these are two people that I want to highlight that have invited me to go with them to evangelize. Uh, The first guy is Andy Pittman. Uh, He invited me to the men's shelter uh, Bethany United Methodist, um, and he basically goes there every Monday night. He sits with the guys as they're getting their meals, the homeless guys, and he just talks with them with the goal of striking up a conversation about Jesus to evangelize. 
Um, and he invited me to come one time and I came and I went for a couple months with him and it literally, it just spurred me on. It was like nourishment to my own soul. It, it, it struck up this idea and this desire to become a person who wants to share Jesus with people, no matter how awkward with it is. Another guy, uh, um, Andres, uh, he also invited me very recently, uh, within the last month and a half to something that he calls frothy fellowship. Uh, they go down to a brewery and they drink beer with the hope of talking with people about Jesus, wherever they're at in their walk, whether they're an unbeliever, a believer, or somewhere in between, uh, where, if there is somewhere in between, that doesn't make sense. Uh, but he invited me to come to this and I, and I came with him a couple times and I've been encouraged and challenged to make it a habit in my own life. And I've been able to see how Andres does engages people in uh, conversations. And that has sharpened me to also desire um, these things. And so there are many people uh, at Remedy Church who are evangelizing. And my encouragement is to invite other people into uh, your labor so that we can create a culture here of evangelism. And guess what? The disciples got their opportunity. Jesus remained there two days and Samaritans kept coming to him and coming to him. And the disciples were with him and they were likely ministering to the Samaritans. And so he took them from only worried about Jesus' food, not wanting to talk to the Samaritans, to join me as we spend two whole days here um, talking with these Samaritans. Our last and concluding uh, point of evangelism, characteristic of evangelism, is the gospel itself. Jesus is the Savior of the world. This is what the Samaritans conclude after talking with him. This is from verse 42. Uh, in uh, conclusion, we should heartily agree with the Samaritans. They've surmised after talking and hearing and listening. It's not just what the Samaritan woman's now told us. We've actually tasted and seen for ourselves that truly, indeed, this is the Savior of the world. We all agree with that, probably, right? Um, so th- this means every square inch, right? Charlotte, Lake Wiley, York, Fort Mill, Chester, Lancaster, Rock Hill. Outside of South Carolina, North Carolina, all the states of the United States, all the continents on the planet, every people group there is. Jesus is the savior of that person, of those people, of that nation. There's not a new message per culture. There's not a new message per language. It's one message that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins by dying on the cross. He took the death that we deserve and he gave us the life that we don't deserve. He raised up on the third day. And offers now freely to anyone who believes in him eternal life. And the wrath of God will no longer remain. So the application of this passage, I think, is apparent, right? We need to build in ourselves a desire for personal evangelism and to act it out so that we might establish a culture of evangelism throughout Remedy. Um, But let me give a few specifics uh, that we've got on the agenda so that you can, that'll help you in this uh, area. I already mentioned this, but this Saturday, January 18th, we're doing a church-wide evangelism project where uh, we'll break up into teams at 9 a.m. here at Remedy, and we'll go out to different parts of the city with the goal of having conversations with complete strangers about Jesus. It's scary, but we're doing it as a group. You'll be in a group, and it's a way in which we can encourage one another and challenge one another and maybe kind of stoke the flame or, uh, you know, Fan the flames, not stoke. Fan the flames into fire. So that's this Saturday, January 18th. Community groups. We're going to be going through a book by J. Mac Stiles called Evangelism. And uh, we'll be doing it kind of every other week. Uh, We'll do a chapter. It's a very short book. 
with the hope of taking from that different trainings, equipments, and then also challenges. And then within community groups, really encouraging and trying to build a culture within ourselves. Like as a group, we're evangelizing, but within the group, maybe we have little partners that we partner up and we go out and we just, you know, we're, we're holding each other accountable. We're texting each other. Hey, so, uh, who are the non-believers in your life that you're praying for? Things like that. Um, Opportunities like Frothy Fellowship, the men's shelter that I mentioned. Uh, we're going to start doing Winthrop Coffee Days again. Um, and there's going to be some other things. We're going to try to get all those things out and get it in front of you so that you can see that there's opportunities in which you as an individual can just plug into something um, and also be a part of evangelism. The hope here is, is, is I hope to challenge you, but I also hope to be challenged by you all, like I've been by so many brothers and sisters in this uh, congregation um, to incorporate evangelism in the everyday goings of life, our jobs, where we eat, where we play, um, praying for your Walmart pickup person, sharing with your waitress, asking the guy at the recycling center about Jesus, whatever it might be, um, and that we might hold each other accountable and continue to ask one another, who, who are the people that you're praying for that would come to see Jesus and join each other in each other's labor, right? So let's get to a place... Um, in our own lives, where not only do we proclaim with our lips that Jesus is the Savior of the world, uh, but we live our lives in a way in which that's true, looking to share them with everyone. Uh, let it be true of all of us that we see the stakes behind evangelism, eternal life, and the wrath of God, and that we always might keep in mind that while we're making disciples, Jesus has promised to be with us. Matthew twenty-eight twenty, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ is always found in the context in which we are making disciples and evangelizing lost. That's a promise from his word. And so as we strive uh, to continue uh, to make a culture marked by evangelism here at Remedy, um, let's also love the body as they are in front of us. Let's love one another and let's build one another up. Let's pray.